hey, what up? It's Jared. Now, I swear that sooner rather than later, we're going to be showing each other our favorite movies that the other hasn't seen and covering some classic films that I love and that Dan doesn't and vice versa. But it just happens that two weekends in a row now, we've been treated to new releases and theaters that we just couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk about. Uh, this week, we are diving deep on the new A24 horror flick, Talk To Me, made by Australian identical twin brothers, Michael and Danny Filippo, who you might know from YouTube as Raka Raka. Uh, any of you who know me uh, know that as much as I love movies, that just absolutely pales in comparison to how much I love horror movies specifically. So if you're like me in that way, you're probably going to love a lot of future episodes we already have in the can. And if that's not you, well, you'll we'll certainly be able to eat around the spooky stuff with plenty of other genres represented on the podcast. And we'll continue dropping new episodes first thing every single Monday morning. Now, next Monday morning, we'll be dropping an episode that I just could not be more excited about. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about YK Kim's Taekwondo Extravaganza Miami Connection. Just a wonderfully earnest, heartfelt, if a little rough around the edges, serving of 80s cheese. So if you don't want to miss that, and trust me, you don't, please go ahead and follow us on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss our new episodes. Now, let's get some quick housekeeping out of the way for this week. You are now entering spoiler territory for Talk To Me. And trust me when I say that this movie is best viewed knowing as little about it as possible. So go out and support independent horror if you haven't done so already and see this film at the movie theater. So A24 will just keep up this steady stream of scary bangers. If you're a fan of the podcast and you want to keep in touch, you can find me on threads at Jared Concessions. Dan holds down the fort on the social network formerly known as Twitter. You can find him by searching Dan Concedes. So without further ado, thanks again for checking out Concessions, and please enjoy our conversation on Danny and Michael Filippo's Talk To Me. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Concessions. I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. And you can talk to the hand. No. Nope. Only gonna get was, dumber kids. Was was anyone else around in the 1990s? Was it just me? <laughs> you know, actually, if you're listening to this episode about talk to me, there's a fairly good chance that you were not. I reckon this movie speaks to um a generation a little bit younger than me, I think. The the youths uh, out there with their TikToks and hello, uh, fellow youths, as the younger of the two here. Hello, fellow children. Dan right now has a backwards baseball cap, so you know that he's younger. Sometimes I do wear backward baseball caps, and uh, the kids, they really love it these days. Y your skin is far better than Steve Buscemi's, though. i got to say. <laughs> you still have a rosy glow. Oh, well, that's that California sunshine. Yeah, that's the sun is exactly what keeps your skin looking nice and fresh. <laughs> hey, uh, before we get into the film talk this evening, it is evening where Dan and I are. What are we drinking? Oh, boy. Uh, I'm glad you asked. I'm having, um, 
Well, so most of the West Coast, particularly uh, Southern California, I feel like they're just obsessed with like IPAs, pale ales, imperial IPAs, triple hopped IPAs, like IPA up the ass IPA. And like, I get a little sick of that every once in a while. Yeah, especially um, on a personal note, I have started a new bar job at a more, you know, European style Irish pub, which isn't so hops in your face. So I'm kind of getting back into like stouts and browns and stuff like that. So I've got a nice... Uh, from from Rogue, which is up there in Oregon, a nice hazelnut brown nectar ale. Oh, is, that sounds yummy. It is sweet. It is dark. It is very yummy. A good kind of a nice old dessert beer. Ooh, just perfectly nutty. You know, I feel like I'm about to betray all that we stand for on concessions. I'm betraying you, Dan. I'm betraying the several people who will listen to this. I am not drinking an alcoholic beverage tonight. I am drinking water. In my water. defense, water. It is. What, what brewery is that? Um, it's called God. <laughs> God Brewery in Seattle, Washington. The stuff just falls from the sky. This is half just uh, cold filtered drinking water and half lime Lacroix. So it's got a little bit. Of a bite, a tight this the oh, tiniest, watch out. You never know what's going on. The tiniest bit of flavor. Now, I had a, a really stressful work day where me and um, all my coworkers were locked in a room together, re- reviewing everyone each other's work. And afterwards, my manager's like, "Who wants to go drink at two p.m.?" I said, "I do." <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, we got a little day drunk. And when I got home today. I decided it was time for a nap, and so I took a nap, and when I woke up from the nap, I came here, and I thought it, that it would be a good idea to not continue to drink. Well, let's so at I least, for, for the people, for the the literal tens of people who could be listening to this, that, what's one beer you had while you're getting day drunk? Your favorite beer I, that you sipped on? Yeah, I had a Guinness and a shot of Jameson. I started off taking sips of them all uh, you know alternating between the two and then once i had sufficiently taken the guinness down to about the one third of the way full mark i dumped the rest of the jameson into the guinness and finished <laughs> drinking it together <laughs> very appropriate uh we'll we'll overlook it that um we care about responsible drinking here at the concessions at concessions the- there is going to be an awful lot of talk about substance abuse in this episode. And I just thought, why don't we just shave that down just a little bit? <laughs> well, that makes one of us. Well, other than what you are consuming down your gullet, what have you consumed into your brain? Really quite a coincidence you should ask that because uh, by recommendation of one of my friends, I had finally gotten around to reading The Exorcist which is strangely uh, on brand for this week's podcast. The movie, I've, I only saw it like a couple of years ago for the first time, and I liked it, but it I don't know. It didn't like immediately hit me as like, oh, this is one of the best horror movies I've ever seen. It's some foundational text for horror cinema. And so I, and, you know, I knew people loved it so much, so it, it intrigued me to dig into the novel. And uh, yeah, definitely, I, I want to go back and watch it again now because of exactly that. Uh, the characterization, especially uh, with the the main priest, like 
yeah, it, it's just it's just much deeper and it's it's much much further. Like a little quote, uh, if you if will indulge me, that I thought was relevant to this uh, upcoming movie too. That it's really interesting that this book got banned by you know the church when it came out because it's actually quite pro faith in a way, like not faith. In the book, uh, it's you know it's expressed as faith in you know uh, in the Catholic faith, but it, it's more just like kind of faith in human decency and humanity and like the the nobility of man and stuff like that. Uh, so a quote I remember I, I like towards the end: uh, the main exorcist is kind of uh, counseling Karis, who's the the lap or the 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 priest who's kind of. The main, the main boxer guy who's kind of got some shaky faith and he says something along the lines of like, no, I tend to see possession most often in the little things, uh, in the senseless petty spites and misunderstanding, the cruel and cutting word that leaps unbidden to the tongue between friends. Um, so I really like that's like that really encapsulates like what they're going at with possession because it's always murky whether or not this is really Satan or not or like a psychological distress or something. So it it, it puts uh hell or like a living hell as like essentially just living outside of uh your community or being someone that tears other people down or can't get along mm. with everyone um and the the kind of psychological effect that can have on you and the people around it no i just thought it was kind of nice um yeah and and karis even though he is the you know he's he's the flappable one of the two where he is sort of questioning his faith and he, he does have a lot of baggage bearing down in him. Even from the very beginning, you see him being like a rock for his community. Mm. Even if he's not, you know, not in his role as a priest, he's still like the neighborhood handyman and like a dependable figure in the community. Um, so like him hearing that, I feel like probably would have really like strengthened his resolve to go ahead and exercise that fucking demon. <laughs> it also, it's a little less silly when you're reading about it. Uh, when you're hearing like the demon be all like cheeky and like funny and fucking around with uh, the priest. Like when you see it, like all the tongue flicking and like the head spinning and stuff like that. I guess maybe I was watching it, you know, in like 2021. It's like, it wasn't scary when you see it. It like, felt kind of goofy <laughs> but when you read it, yeah. it it definitely feels a little more visceral because you're letting your imagination fill in the gaps yeah the exorcist as a film has not aged particularly well for me either uh, watching it as a child it definitely scared me obviously i've seen and heard about in the 70s just how much it messed people up in the movie theater you know um but I, I tried watching it around that time as well, and it just isn't really landing anymore. And I do also prefer the novel. Um, mm. This week, I revisited a property from my childhood that definitely still holds up. And I saw the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, Mutant Mayhem, and it just transported me back to being a four-year-old boy with my Leonardo... Uh, stuffed animal that I carried around with me everywhere I went and, you know, cuddled while I slept every, every night. I was the biggest Ninja Turtles fan growing up. And, you know, there's been so many iterations at this point and so many reboots. And I've never seen the like Michael Bay produced hmm. 
one, like live action ones. There was an anim another animated one that I think was not connected to those uh, fairly recently as well that I never saw. But this new one is so good. The animation on it is like a dirty, unfinished version of Spider-Verse or mm -hmm. Mitchell's Verse of the Machines. And it just looks so amazing. And it's the movie is so full of heart and it's so funny. And the turtles themselves actually are our kids in this one. Like they're teenagers. Mm -hmm. They're not just called that, but it's they're actually like in their 20s. Like you typically see the Ninja Turtles. Right. Um, and I love it. Strongly recommend it. When we publish uh, this episode of the podcast, the Ninja Turtles movie will have just finished its opening weekend. And I doubt it's going to dethrone Barbie, hmm. but it should uh, because it's awesome. And you should go see the Ninja Turtles movie if you uh, have any interest in ninjas or turtles or teens. <laughs> um, two things about that. Um, one, I've actually never seen a single episode of any of the shows. I've never seen any iterations of the films. Um, so I am actually... Uh, a complete virgin when it comes to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I'm actually, I'm excited to check that out. It should be a lot of fun. And another bit, and I think I just read this today. Um, yeah, actually, I think this news came out today. If you saw this, that uh, what's his name? The, the biggest YouTuber on the planet, Mr. Beast, I guess was in it. And he broke uh, SAG protocols and crossed the picket line to do some promo for it. So he's getting under some, uh, some hot water for that one. Yikes. I, don't recall seeing Mr. Beast in it, but with the I brand mean, of the the brand of the humor in it, and that I, I totally believe that. Like, so he was just in it playing a character, not playing himself. Yeah, yeah, I think he was just part of it, and he was promoting it. Um, and uh, everything, you know, I've never actually consumed of stuff, but everything I've read about the guy is all about getting the bag. So I'm not surprised that he'd do a little scab work. Yikes! Ouch! He's also in the middle of suing his partners in his fast food chain because the quality of the food is so bad mm. um but anyways this is not a uh, mr beast uh podcast not uh, yet <laughs> not yet uh once yeah once he hears this podcast because i'm sure we're gonna get big enough that mr beast is gonna listen to this and he's gonna probably start coming after that us and we're gonna have some great uh drama content and we're gonna become a drama podcast but anyways what did we uh watch this week jared absolutely so talk to me is directed by identical twin brothers, Danny and Michael Filippo. Uh, apparently, Michael is six minutes older than Danny. And that's wasn't George Miller's uh, guess because Danny is the one that never shuts up in interviews. And Michael just kind of nods and every once in a while will chime in. But they have this exact, they have an identical voice as well. So it's like, you never even know. Um, the screenplay is by Danny and uh, Bill Hinsman. Danny and Michael say they cannot write together, that the act of writing is just too personal and too vulnerable, and the two of them cannot give each other a break enough to, uh, to write, so they just direct together. The concept of this movie is by Daly Pearson, who's most well-known to parents of young children because he is the executive producer of bluey and one of the main figures uh, around bluey which is just hilarious that the the guy that 
is, is such a central figure for probably the most popular children's show the last few years uh, came up with this wild concept. Uh, the movie stars Sophie Wilde in her uh, really like her major uh, motion picture debut. Uh, it's got Miranda Otto from who played Eowyn in the Lord of the Rings. And I don't know about you, Dan, but I have a very specific emotion that lives in my heart that I only feel when I see an actor from the Lord of the Rings uh-huh. in something else. It's like seeing an ex and and they're really happy and you want them to be happy and you you love you still love them and you want what's best for them but just seeing them with someone else still going to sting a little bit. Yeah, you're That's like, wait, hold on. You're not in Middle Earth. You're not in Rohan. Yeah. What are you doing? It did yeah, take me but... like a hot second where uh, when she came on screen, I'm like, I know this lady. Wait, hold on. Who is this? Yeah. And Miranda Otto actually is now starting to become somewhat of a scream queen because she uh, has a, a major role in a, a movie called Annabelle Creation, which is the best movie in the Conjuring uh, franchise by far it's not even close that is a really kick-ass movie and she's in it uh, the this movie though also also stars uh, alexandra jensen as her daughter uh joe bird as her son riley uh amazing we need to talk about him a lot in a minute it also stars zoe tarakis and chris elosio as uh their friends who kind of introduce them to this new drug of a hand um, Dan, you know, this is the the major motion picture debut by these directors, so I can't really ask you much about your previous relationship with the the Filippo brothers, uh, also known as uh, Raka Raka on YouTube. But other than The Exorcist, what is your previous relationship with the possession horror genre? Because you said a moment ago that you didn't really consider the exorcist this like foundational horror text and i strongly disagree at least when it as it pertains to the possession drama so tell me more about your take on the possession drama yeah uh, possession horror genre yeah i guess i would agree that like i know it's foundational because i've watched it i'm like okay there's like i can see so many movies are drawing from this i guess i would i would more expressing it's like if i didn't know that this was like one of the big ones and i just saw it on a whim or something like that it probably would just roll off my back um but yeah, with possession dramas, and I don't know if you know plenty of people like this, where I know a lot of people that's like, I like scary movies, but uh, demons, no. Like, it's like the one thing <laughs> they won't do, like supernatural shit. They're just like, no, 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 no. Where, I mean, it uh, doesn't particularly bother me. Um, if anything, it's the the possession drama kind of, because it's so fantastical, um, it sort of keeps me at arm's length enough that it doesn't quite get into my bones. Cause I don't, I don't know, maybe, well, we'll see maybe halfway through this episode, uh, my comeuppance will happen, but like, I'm not really too worried about uh, little gremlins or demons coming into my soul and possessing me. Um, but yeah, I mean also just with horror in general, I was kind of late to the game on it. I didn't like, well, cause I hated jump scares and I feel like, uh, I grew, I was like coming of age in the 2000s and uh, not the best time for horror films, I would say largely. And it was mo- like a lot of the big franchises or the big things that are pulling into the theaters were the big like jump scare boo fests that are going on. It just kind of wasn't for me. So it kind of kept me away from it for a while until strangely enough, um, it uh, is what got me back in. So when I first started watching or when I saw it, I'm like, okay, there's something to horror films. And I started digging through the annals and stuff like that. 
And, you know, it comes through the basic possession uh, dramas like, yeah, your exorcist, your uh, uh, poltergeist as well as another big one that comes to mind. And I think like then it's not the kind of horror that really gets into my bones. And we'll we'll dig into this a little bit later. Uh, I mean, they're fun, like especially the well executed ones are can be just a wild ride. Very exciting. Um, but they usually I'm not sleeping with the lights on after I've watched movies like that. Uh, but what I, especially with this one, you know, now my context going to this, like you had seen this a couple weeks before me in a sneak preview and you were speaking very highly of it. And I read the uh, read the the synopsis for it. I saw it's an A24 horror movie, which usually at least it's going to be a marker of decent quality. It looks like an original, fresh idea. So I was really excited going into this one. Um, I would say mostly uh, didn't disappoint. Uh, Jared, what about you and the whole spooky demon possession horror genre? I really like possession horror. Maybe it's because I was raised in such a like just really hardcore uh, fundamentalist Christian church. Uh, and it was like, you know, the 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 danger of Satan and his minions was really really like just beat into me really hard as a kid. Uh, just a lot of fire and brimstone. Maybe there's some, uh, you know, it's just some, some, some of that still kind of occupies some of that, you know, the really kind of deep part of my, uh, my Wait, unconscious. That's interesting because uh, I was also grew up in a quite conservative Christian world, but we weren't scared of demons. We were scared of the gays. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I always loved it. I, I loved the exorcist when I was a kid. I, uh, there's a lot of more recent movies that deal with possession that I really like. The original conjuring is, uh, has, has some pretty good possession bits. Paranormal activity jumps out at me as like a really, really solid possession movie. And I really like this one. Um, so yeah, you know, let's get let's get more into kind of our likes and dislikes on Talk to Me. So right here is going to be the big fat spoiler warning. Uh, from here on out, if you haven't seen Talk to Me, why are you listening to this? Go see Talk to Me, um, <laughs> or watch Talk to Me. You know wherever it's streaming. If you're from the future. All right, so the thing that I really like about it's got a pretty singular kind of technical focus on just like real visceral, horrific thrills. Like there isn't like a, a sustained sense of like mounting dread or um, just like terror that like, you know, kind of continues and builds. I mean, I guess there's there's some of that, but this movie really just like really just kind of like chews you up and spits you out. And it isn't like jump scares. Like usually like that sort of movie will really, really land on like jump scares um, to to kind of reach that end of that kind of that thrill ride moment. But this movie, it, it isn't jump scares. It's like the performances 
the blocking, the camera movement, the sound in particular. And I, I really respect that. It's kind of rare to see a movie that is this viscerally thrilling in the horror genre um, that doesn't rely on jump scares. Yeah, um, and that, that that's I think what I was mentioning too with my experience with like the the possession genre in general, or like what kind of was my slower uh, approach to appreciating horror is like jump scare fests don't really do it for me, and and that's exactly what I really liked about Talk to Me, which um, I'm about to uh, make quite a powerful comparison where, where the anti jump scare or the almost jump scare uh, reminded me of Halloween in certain ways. Um, where it was, it's someone who's like in such control, they know how to manipulate the audience emotionally, which any good filmmaker should be able to do in any genre, really, um, to play around with expectations, do set up for expectations, and then do things differently, do or you know, sometimes lean into it, sometimes go away from it, sometimes fake it out. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was the first thing, especially that opening, uh, oneer that uh, the film uh, led with. Uh, I, I just immediately understood it's like, oh, we're like we're in the hands of people who know what they're doing and they're ready to fuck you up. Oh yeah. I love a good opening one or that does exactly what you described. Just inserts you into the world of the film and confidently tells you that they are not there to fuck around. I also think of Halloween. Uh, when I think of those great opening oneers, I think of it follows, uh, which is a little bit different because it, it's not, um, ironically, it's not like a follow shot. Or like a, a super dynamic one, or it's just like a very, um, very long kind of still one. Or um, I think of the movie The Place Beyond the Pines mm. with Ryan Gosling. And if you've never seen it, it's, it opens with this great shot of you seeing Ryan Gosling uh, get ready for something. Like he's putting on a jacket, a helmet, um, and uh, he's he's getting he's pumping himself up for some kind of performance. And the camera, without breaking at all, uh, follows him down this path where he's like, uh, you start to get the feeling that it's like some kind of outdoor event, a circus or uh, a carnival or, or, or something like that. And finally, he gets on a motorcycle and then you follow the motorcycle into one of those gigantic, like, enclosed orbs where people or, you know, it's like stunt motorcycle riding where where the, the the motorcyclists are riding around the inside of an orb, but mm -hmm. the shot is constructed to make it look like it's still Ryan Gosling doing it. <laughs> and that's when I knew that movie wasn't fucking around. And then just like the really classic example, uh, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, mm. where you see yeah, yeah. The, bo the bomb being placed in the trunk of the car, and then you follow the car for an uncomfortable amount of time before it goes off. Yeah, this this movie, definitely that opening one and just the, the shock of the violence that occurs at the end of it is uh, definitely uh, trains you as an audience member to be afraid of the movie itself. <laughs> and like this, this movie's unpredictability or the extent to like, which it's willing to go to shock you. And yeah. And it, and it just pummels you again with the sound, with the blocking, with the camera movements, with the performances, with the scenario itself. Awesome. Awesome opening. In a way, that kind of reminds me of like remember the the cultural sensation of like the end of season one of Game of Thrones when uh, Ned Stark gets decapitated and all of a sudden like now anything's game for the rest of the show. Um, it, it it felt like that towards the end where it's like just the way that 
yeah, the, the, the way that the, the narrative constructed in that one or like it just showed you it's like at any point, um, every scene is loaded with danger and you don't know where it's going to go. So even like the calmer scenes where it just winds up in the end just being a dialogue scene or, or something that's building characterization or exposition, it's in the back of your mind. It's like shit can fly off whenever. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Another thing I really like about this movie is the simplicity of the concept. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, It's very concept forward and it's easy to explain. And whenever the 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 filmmakers are asked to kind of pitch their movie during uh, the press tour that they uh, that they did, you know, weeks ago, kind of leading up to uh, to its release. Uh, they say the same thing. They say, talk to me as a horror film about kids who use demonic possession to get high. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's probably the fewest words that I've ever heard a, a director or writer confidently pitch their product with. And it, it takes me back to some advice that Steven Spielberg gave to, to young writers that if you're able to describe the plot of your your film in 20 words or less, it probably has potential to be good. Mm. And that is far less than 20 words. And uh, <laughs> they really make good on that concept. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, and we can get into it a little bit. I would say actually that simplicity is what gives it a bit of a lower ceiling for me. Um, but we it will, will, we're going to have to do some conceding here, concessions. Uh, we're going to get into that. Um, but yeah, uh, so, you know, just with the general things that we like, dislike, just kind of grounding that, which let me get make it clear. I like the movie. It is a good movie, everyone. Um, I think I just liked it slightly less than Jared. But anyways, um, yeah, uh, Jared, as you were saying, where it's, you know, kids using possession to get high. Do you want to, like, expand on that with uh, that as sort of a thematic element? Yeah. Well, this movie is very much concerned about teen drug use or just drug use in general and in the way that it's um, people, um, particularly teenagers, use it to connect with one another. Like this movie is very much about connections and yearning for connections, whether that's with your best friend, whether that's with um, your parent who might no longer be with us or even the one that still is. Um, It's about romantic connections that are you know that are either fleeting or or um uh that that never quite came to pass Uh, this movie is just populated with characters that are uh desperate for a connection um particularly our our main heroine uh heroine um and oftentimes drugs are the easy path to those connections and in this movie the drug is a disembodied hand that will allow you to get possessed by a demonic spirit. Hmm. Um, So you see it right from the beginning of this movie. There's an argument to be made that Riley, the little brother of the best friend who isn't like the lead role as far as screen time, but there's a, there's an argument to be made that he is the protagonist of the movie in, in some ways. And right from the beginning, he's facing peer pressure like we see him and within like maybe two or three minutes of the movie beginning. And the first thing that happens is he's offered a cigarette by his best friend. And we see right away that Riley is kind of interested in like kind of walking that wild side. He's like 14 years old. He's like, can see that it might be kind of cool and rebellious to smoke a cigarette, but he, he doesn't because he knows, 
he knows what's what's good for him, right? He's a smart he's a smart kid. He's like a likable kid, so he doesn't smoke the cigarette. Um, and then you see the peer pressure mounting in him for like the next 15, 20, mm-hmm. 25 minutes of the movie until uh, he gives into it. He tries the hand and gets per- more fucked up on screen than almost any other child I've ever seen in a movie. Um, well, kind of reminds me of the kid from The Exorcist, like towards certain points. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly, yeah. So, certainly, like uh, Linda Blair in The Exorcist mm-hmm. is, uh, yeah, as a child, it gets probably even more fucked up than Riley <laughs> does in this movie. I also love the uh, the insult when he doesn't take the cigarette. He calls him a fetus. I'm like, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. I never heard that yeah. one as an insult out there. That's what the kids are throwing at each other these days. You never heard someone refer to someone as a fetus when they want to just like make fun of them for being like really young and naive and inexperienced and kind of like, <laughs> nah, I, I guess I wasn't hanging around with the, the real cool kids giving cigarettes and calling each other fetuses. <laughs> I guess not. Maybe it's an Aussie thing. <laughs> uh, uh, but Oh, it just, just kind of continue on for some examples where just how well this movie develops its kind of thematic layer very early on. So even in that opening one where you see, uh, I'm not. I don't. I don't remember the names of the characters. But you see one brother. Uh, there's a follow shot. He's at this wild party. He's looking for his his brother, and he doesn't know where his brother is. But you get a sense that like w- he knows that his brother is probably up to something not good, and that he's there to kind of protect him or save him. And he passes by a group, and he's like, "Hey, have you seen my brother?" And it's like, "Oh yeah, he's like so and so. He's definitely on something." It's like, like one of the hereditary, very that party scene. Yeah, Definitely, there's a few things that feel like hereditary yeah, in this movie yeah. for sure, um, but that, but yeah, like one of the very first uh, lines of dialogue that you can actually hear is, "He's definitely on something," hmm. um, and it kind of continues from there. And that thematic through line again, like uh, soon after that, with with the peer pressure with the cigarette, it gets added before it really comes to a head in um, the actual possession scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's what. Um, came to mind too is especially given the kind of the unspoken social context that we're working here where you know when you're you're in the houses of a lot of these uh people's or you're in a lot of these people's homes you're kind of seeing the the way they dress the way they act and this is definitely like even though it's australia it's it's the suburbs it's this it's you know it's haddonfield illinois but in southern australia um and you get this feeling, and it kind of it uh, the the sort of teen slasher of the eighties were kind of tapping on the same thing as this sort of malaise that comes out of being a teenager in a very safe, well to do suburb, and you just kind of need something, num- some spark to kind of like mm. make you quote unquote feel something. And you know, I grew up in basically the the, the real life Haddonfield, Illinois, and yeah, there were like there were very real drug problems where I grew up, where everyone was you know, decently well off and everyone had everything that they needed, but there were still, there's like, there's just like something that's not clicking and people resort to other things uh, to, to try and fill that gap. And, and I always remember too, that um, 
this is always like overtly discussed in my background in sports too, is the idea of like communal suffering or like mm. bonding through difficult things or intense activities. And it can be, um, it can be directed for either good or ill. So like sports is something that, you know, generally can be a good thing where it's, you know, you're uh, a very hard practice or really intense conditioning or, or, um, you know, just pushing yourself to the limit with a bunch of other yeah. people can be a very bonding experience yeah. can, can bring solidarity. Um, what are the tenets of boot camp? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they do that for a reason. Um, but then, like, if you don't have this sort of community or this this greater project, but you still need that, like, that cohesion, that social cohesion, that that or that you, especially teenagers, need that so badly. Like, you you got to resort to, or you could resort to quicker options to to options that kind of that get that fix even faster. And um, you know, I'm not. I'm far from a sociologist or a social psychologist or something like that, but I can see how that sort of malaise can lead to groups of people trying to engage in uh, intense extreme activities in order to just kind of fucking feel something. Um, And so I like, even though this movie is about um, kids who are born about 20 years after me, Eh, not 20, but like 15 years after me, at least in a very different social context. Like I understood the social world that they were all swimming in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in a, in a small town where there's really nothing to do, but either start a band or get high or both. Uh, As a teenager, I did both for sure. (laughs) Um, And I, clicked with this movie in a in a way in a personal way because the first time i ever like tried smoking pot was right after my best friend died in high school Mm. and i remember just being like um i just remember thinking like yeah shit like might as well like get high to try to like think of something else or Mm -hmm. like not experience this anymore like directly and that's what happens in this movie and again uh the uh the idea of grief the hand like uh kind of preying on the weak or like people who are at their most vulnerable start starts again from the beginning i remember the first thing that the the brother who stabs his brother because he's under you know the possession of of you know spirits from the hand he tells his brother pops said you would hurt a lot of people so we find out right away that uh, the two of them are experiencing grief. They've lost their father and that these malevolent spirits are, are like very diabolical and are willing to uh, prey on the vulnerable and want and, to prey on the vulnerable. And what's important, um, which I think does, uh, does work with the metaphor of the hand as drug, where it's like the hand didn't, isn't like, it doesn't have a will. It wasn't like drawing people in. It was just people like because of their their life experiences or their their conditions that led up to being exposed to this particular thing is what made them more apt to to be drawn towards it. Um, so it's not like the it's not like the hand was like calling to Mia or something like that. It's that Mia when she first used it like because of the grief that she was feeling and the general um even outside of the grief that she was feeling you you got the sense that she was socially isolated and alienated from her peers anyways even before all this um it, she was more receptive to the quote-unquote high uh that she would get from uh engaging with the hand 
And it leads me to, and I think that's the big difference, I would say, where um, the basics of the the social dynamics or or the the social world that they were existing in, I, I felt very familiar to me, even though I was a teenager in the 2000s and we're talking about the 2020s. What I think was quite different, and it was highlighted really interestingly in this, and I think we're starting to get much more fascinating um uh, discussions on this in film is the use of is current uses of phones, social media, technology, oh, uh, yeah. mediated experiences, and it actually got me thinking of this uh, book I had read a little while ago, actually from the '60s, strangely. So, like, this has been on people's minds for a long time. People were talking about like burgeoning technology and drug use in the '60s. Well, actually, they were talking about TikTok specifically. It's really weird. Um, no, it's, um, it was it was this like this very this uh, smaller French movement. Um, and this guy named Guy Debord, showing off my degree again, everyone, uh, please applaud. Um, but no, it, it got me kind of, it reminded me of, it's this idea of when things cease to be about the, uh, when the material world is being superseded by the image of something. Um, so I remember when I studied this uh, this book in class, uh, the, the, the case that my professor brought up, which I thought was very interestingly, is like, now in 2023, we know that the, uh, you know, the U.S. claimed that they were going to the Middle East because WMDs, they weren't there. They were never there. And it, it's like, pretty clear from uh internal documents that we all or that the u.s government also knew there were no wmds there but uh it's a it's a line that always circles in my head over and over it's like uh if something is perceived to be real it will be real in its consequences so and, and that makes me think about like just the the idea of the power of the image the power of the mediated image of how it's constructed uh what goes in the frame what goes out of the frame and like uh, that can go into your social media presence or your online presence, what you tweet, what you show like about your life. And like when you're going through your, you know, you're scrolling to Twitter, Instagram, whatever, you're seeing the highlights of everyone. Um, and it got me thinking of this uh, little quote. Um, if it, once again, you'll indulge me, I'll do two quotes in one uh, episode. I apologize to everyone, but it's from society of the spectacle. Um, and it, uh, it goes as thus, uh, the reigning economic system is a vicious cycle, cycle of isolation. Its technologies are based on isolation, and they contribute to that same isolation. From the automobile to television, the goods that a spectacular system chooses to produce also serve as its weapons for constantly reinforcing the conditions that engender quote-unquote lonely crowds. With ever-increasing concrete news, the spectacle recreates its own presuppositions. That was written almost 50 years ago now. And like, and it just describes social media like <laughs> yeah. to a T. Yeah. And th this is them talking about like television and the, the effect that was having on people in the 60s. And like, man, just multiply that by to, to exponential degrees. And that's what it has to feel like, especially for someone, you know, you and I are people who grew up before social media. Where most of my Primarily, life has, yeah. I've had access to the internet, but I didn't have that like really intimate access to other people's lives via the internet, like uh, people born in like 2000, 2005 have now. And like, I just, I can't imagine what that does to your subjectivity. Yeah. Yeah. And again, and it permeates through like just the, that perspective permeates through kind of the other themes of the movie where um, I remember really vividly there's a scene right at the beginning where it's, it's the main character's mom's remembrance day. Like mm. it's the day uh, it's, it's the, it's the second anniversary of 
the day that Mia's mom died and she's out on the steps of like the church wherever they were holding like the remembrance party and some like unknown person, it's probably like a, a extended family member or something comes up to her and, you know, ask her how she's doing and she's trying to make small talk. And the thing that she comes up with to say to Mia is like, I still can't believe it. And I, I still haven't taken her name out of my, my phone contacts, <laughs> Which, like, like to a, a lesser extent, like, I'm sure anyone that's had a major breakup, like, that's kind of a watershed moment when you delete their contact out of your phone, where, uh, where, yeah, and I mean, I can't imagine the, fortunately, I've had no one, you know, my own age pass uh, tragically or, or early, but, um, yeah, that, that's, like, an interesting uh psychic barrier that uh, refusing to delete someone, that, that makes total sense. Yeah, just like kind of using like you know that that phone is the most intimate thing to you. So like using, you know, thinking of that person relationship to your phone before the relationship to you as a person I, I, isn't even that shocking or strange. No, and most of that relationship probably was conducted via the phone, via text right. or calls or yeah. social media. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to dig in a little bit more about about you know the social media of it all and you know virality. Uh, memes, the trends around like TikTok challenges and documenting everything. So I, I have a, a question and actually, you know, the, the quote from the Society of the Spectacle um, that you mentioned again from 1967 seems to indicate uh, the answer to this question, but I, I've been wondering a lot since watching this movie, this urge to just record vulnerable moments to document things to display your life others lives particularly at you know the the most those most vulnerable points how much of that is just innate in humanity like how much of that is just something that has dwelled within us for for generations or you know maybe even millennia and how much of it is caused by just access to smartphones like I know obviously people have wanted to document everything. And obviously that's something that makes us human and just like putting down history and writing down memoirs, but like to like, wh where does it end? Like, like at what point would technology progress to a point where it leaves behind that urge? Like, have mm. we reached that Zenith yet? Or are we going to go even deeper down that rabbit hole of documenting everything? Well, and I think that goes down to, um, like what what the quote says and it's something that i believe about well it's it's documented about social media where it's like social media is designed not not for human connection first it's designed to keep you on there first like that's you know they're a business they're trying to make money through ad revenue how do they do that they keep you on well what keeps you on it's things that are shocking things that are dramatic things that uh catch the eye and like what catches the eye better than tragedy or something yeah. that angers you or something that excites you in any way, shape or form. Um, something that disgusts you a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like how many, how many times have you accidentally slipped into a rage bait video where it's just something right. clearly like Ben Shapiro talking about yeah, like, Barbie. Yeah. Ben Shapiro <laughs> talking about Barbie is one of the more grotesque things I've seen on the internet. And that's but, really saying something. But it, it, it follows a perfectly uh, rational logic where it's like, um, we watched it. Um, and advertisers <laughs> want content creators who are going to get a lot of eyeballs on their content so that more people will see the ads as well. Um, so when, when you're saying it's like our obsession with documentation of vulnerable moments where I think you're totally right, where it's like, this is nothing new. We've, we've always wanted to share our lives with each other to document our lives. Like, I mean, you know, 
the diary is not a new invention. But I think the particular way and the particular incentives of posting it, of sharing it, of sharing things that are punchy, that are shocking, that, that'll get your friends to watch, that'll get it shared, that'll get it sent out, that will become viral. Um, and like, and I think the hand in like, it's, you know, it's history where they kind of, they don't really go into too deep, like the mechanics of the hand, where it came from, they're, they're, they're kind of purposely vague, but it sort of has that nature of like a viral meme where it's just kind of passed via word of mouth and sent from one person to another. I mean, almost, you know, like a, like a possession or a plague or something like that. But the, the idea of virality, I think really works here. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, the more I think about it, it really just keeps coming back to that idea of people wanting to make human connections and going about it just the absolute wrong ways. Like just the addiction behind your phone is the same driving addiction behind actual like you know ingestible substances um you know i was i kind of went into this conversation thinking of those two things as separate thematic elements in mm. this movie but they're not they they're they're utterly intertwined and the more i think about it the more i really think that the screenplay is very very on point like with just how simple and straightforward and specific and clear and clean all of that really is there isn't really a wasted moment in this movie that doesn't support that thematic through line. And I think that's pretty impressive for a movie that is also, you know, very adept at shocking you viscerally and, and actually just, you know, ha- like bringing the horror in spades because yeah, this is an a 24 horror movie, you know, whatever that means. Like, you know, this is another movie they chose to buy and distribute. Um, but usually I, I think of a 24 movies as, you know, quote unquote, elevated horror, where it's <laughs> it's more of like it's more of a drama uh, with some horror elements. But this is like front and center, a horror movie, mm-hmm. but it still has like such rich and, and just crystal clear you know, mm-hmm. themes. I really respect that. And I think um, what I think really makes it so that it's done with a, a depth or at least a. Uh, a sensitive hand is that these directors are uh they're native to the internet like uh like we said the the brothers they got a channel called raka raka they they cut their teeth on youtube um they're they're 30 years old which like they're technically not gen z but like they definitely have that online sensibility um so it it feels much uh more uh sensitive to what it's like growing up in that environment other than like i don't know if this movie was made by like a 60 or 70 year old it's gonna be those damn kids and their tickety talks out my spacing and on their googles (laughs) yeah it definitely doesn't uh it definitely doesn't take that point of view you could definitely feel the filmmakers to an extent admitting that they're you know kind of part of that culture even though they're a little bit older than the characters that they're that they're you know giving voice to, I, I, you know, we've, we've talked about this one-on-one and like a few other times, like you and I had like a really, really long detailed conversation about skin and rink recently that we did not record. And I wish we had, because that would have been a good episode. Yeah. Um, but you know, obviously that's another example of a YouTuber who's making a movie and, uh, it's basically like an expanded version of their YouTube content. Um, another movie that we saw recently was the people's Joker that very much like comes across as like, it's kind of like a feature length YouTube skit. Yeah. yeah. Um, it almost plays like a video essay at points. 
Yeah, this movie is not that though. Like these these guys, like if you watch their YouTube content, it is like nonsense. Like they're they're essentially <laughs> back they're backyard wrestlers who have just over the years have gotten more and more and more elaborate filming their fight scenes. Um, and they're really silly. They're you know, uh, really hyperactive, nonsensical. Not not a whole lot of like through line. Um, but very impressive from a technical point of view and just how well they film violence. Um, this movie does not really betray that, in my opinion, even though it's about these these themes and it's about people who live online. And, you know, these these kids are like, you know, one step away from starting a YouTube channel for the hand. <laughs> the movie is, is not made with that sensibility, in my opinion. Like this movie is doesn't feel at all like like Rocket Rocket's YouTube videos. So um, like a, I would say a creator or I would say probably the original YouTube star that uh, reminds me of what you're talking about is Bo Burnham. Um, I mean, if you've seen eighth grade, like that has that looks nothing like the content that he was creating when he was on YouTube. Right. But it but but it is also literally about a YouTuber. Yeah, <laughs> that too. Where in similar like similar to talk to me where it's like it's very concerned with the themes that someone who is enmeshed in that culture would be concerned about, but it doesn't have that, like uh, that sort of, Oh, I'm a YouTuber uh, aesthetic to it. Right. 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 You know, I have another, there's no, there's one other um, thematic element or, or symbol that we haven't dug into. And I, I might have some thoughts, but I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. Cause it's not something we've talked about yet, you know, kind of on or off record uh, the hand. So like, mm -hmm. You know, obviously, it's nothing new to have like a central object in a horror film, almost like a you know, kind of a, the horror's version of the of the MacGuffin is the thing that's after you instead of you going after it. Yeah, and that's you know they they play on this really really well in the movie Cabin in the Woods. If you've ever seen Cabin mm -hmm. in the Woods, mm -hmm. they're they're like trying to decide which kind of you know object is going to begin the horror, and you know obviously like hands are such an intimate thing and like something that we use to express ourselves so much something that we use as you know symbols of intimacy with each other is the first thing that we do as like uh western humans when we meet a new person is we just insist on having them touch our hands and our uh, we touch theirs but dan like what's your perspective on like why is this movie about a hand like what is the hand as a symbol why do you think they chose uh you know a, a disembodied forearm and hand huh. as their reverse macguffin yeah, uh, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head with the idea of like human connection and touch and and this kind of missing things that um, you're seeing our main, you know, uh, uh, precarious group of teenagers trying to seek through, you know, holding the hand and it kind of invokes those feelings. But what I think is interesting, too, is when they I think I mentioned earlier when they talk about uh, the what it's like the history of it. And, you know, this is an Australian film. They open their mouths and you immediately can tell we're down under. Um, so when you, when you have something like magical or supernatural, especially in a colonized space, like Australia is like, there's a tendency to make it like, think about in the American context of like, you know, Oh, this is like 
uh, like The Shining is built on an American Indian burial ground or something like that, where all scary things, all spooky things that Westerners don't understand is somehow connected to the indigenous community. Um, and you even have characters that they they seem like they're uh, indigenous uh, to me. I don't know quite enough about the indigenous community about New Zealand and Australia to peg it down, but they just seemed like it to me. Um, but that the fact that they're not hearkening to that, I actually think is quite... Oh, yeah. Uh, adept of them uh, yeah not, they, they specifically call out that the hand is is from europe i think i, or, I don't recall yeah, it's, like they, a, it's like a psychic or something of that like they're speaking in western terms or western yeah, uh, magical yeah, yeah. traditions uh yeah, not like there. a shaman mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. like you know anything along those lines they, yeah they they're it definitely has like a christian underpinning like the hands origin yeah and and you're hearing that too when they especially and I think that was some of the most uh, I don't know visceral or shocking images when you see Riley in like like in the clutches of all Ooh, the demons and stuff yeah. like that like that was just that like was having dis- a blood orgy yeah that was disturbing as all get out and all the language they used to discuss like what it's like to be possessed, what Riley is going through. It's all discussed in very Catholic terms, actually, very Christian terms. Um, like they, yeah. they explicitly say limbo. Uh, well, or like the, Other, the, the, other the, than when they're describing the good feelings where they're describing yeah. it as a drug, where they say, <laughs> oh, it makes you feel like you're glowing. It's yeah, incredible. Yeah. It's like it puts you in the passenger seat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I thought that was very interesting that they were speaking, especially because you have a uh, explicitly like, you know, the the sort of straight laced Christian kid is also around too. And they're, they're talking about it in very uh, Western Christian terms. Uh, and it got me thinking too, it's like, maybe that was part of the draw too, that it's sort of, um, sort of magnified or at least intensified the feeling that these kids have, like going back to the suburban malaise of kind of being in a limbo space. I mean, even being a young adult or a teenager is sort of this in-betweenness, this liminal space that you're in. So like, I I wonder if that could be considered like even an extra draw for like why this would be particularly juicy to young people, to teens. Yeah. Here's this dangerous thing that, you know, I can try to best understand that I can try to, um, that I can try to kind of own and control. Um, but it, but it's, you know, it's that much further away from my parents type of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will also point out that the hand does kind of evoke an image of like a junkie's arm. Mm, yeah, yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, especially with like it's like all mutilated, not mutilated, it's like scratched up like looking, scratched yeah. up, pockmarks in it, track mm-hmm. marks rather. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, wow, everything really connects like thematically in this movie, like so, so, so well. I also really like the way that it's actually like they shoot the hand, like whenever a new person, um, you know, goes to shake the hand, basically, it's shot so intimately, like mm-hmm. so um luxuriously or so like kind of sensually like i mean obviously there's a lot of like overt um sexuality like 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 any good demon possession movie the demons are like obsessed with sex (laughs) it's just you know because again we're we're talking about like something uh from like a kind of a christian point of view like these are these are definitely like Like what's more evil than Um, just being super duper sexy but before any of that happens the way that like they like um someone's handle go on to the hand and the camera will sort of follow it. So like mm. you're along for the ride and like you get to get to kind of feel what it would feel like to touch the hand. Very, yeah, there's like a, very there's a cool. sort of eroticism to it almost. 
Yeah, but at first it's gentle. Mm-hmm. And it's not until like they really like, you know, let me in, like, you know, I let you in that uh it really, you know, kind of goes over the top. Like they really do it really does like feel good at first. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, really interesting. So is there anything else that you wanted to cover as far as um some of this broader um uh kind of thematic material? Because personally, uh I, I just want to geek out on some of the like actual <laughs> filmmaking in this, but uh I I I don't wanna uh, you know, ran on your parade or there's anything else that, so, you know, if you want to wax poetic a little bit more about the movie. <laughs> I think the only last bit um, that, you know, it's an A24 film. So I kind of go in with a certain set of expectations or a certain uh, set of, I don't even want to call it tropes because, you know, A24, they don't make these movies. They just uh, distribute them. Um, but this movie has shares a lot of bones with hereditary in what um, is interesting that I've been reading commentary about it and everyone was so uh, like so geeked out about the twist ending where um, you know Mia becomes one of the demons on the other side of the hand at the very end. It's like, I think they're Italian uh, on the other side. They're, they're Greek. Oh, they're Greek. Oh, they're Greek. That's really interesting because you know it's, so. a, it's actually it's actually Danny and Michael Filippo's like Greek like cousin. Oh, that's so like cool. these guys are Greek by descent. It's actually a, like one of their like you know, uh, like you know, family members like mm. from Greece. Well, that's actually funny to invoke Greece because I was about to say I didn't see this as a twist ending. I saw it as a Greek tragedy, like yeah. um, especially towards kind of the turn to the third act where you're realizing that uh, the mother demon figure is not trustworthy and is manipulating her. I I felt. Uh, a lot of shared DNA with Hereditary, where um, Mia is no longer making choices, or she's no longer capable of making choices, and she's being pushed through an inevitable ending. So I never really saw it as a twist ending per se, but like the logical out or the the faded outcome for her that kicked off the moment she held that hand for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that, that kind of unreliable mother figure, you know, desperate to connect with that's Oedipus, that's Hamlet, any, that's any number of tragedies. And yeah, I mean, so then the question, you know, that that begs, and I hope you have an answer for this, because if you don't, then it can't be a Greek tragedy. Uh, (laughs) What then is Mia's fatal flaw? Man, I, yeah, see, I was trying to think about that. And I was like, there's not like, you know, it's not like a classic one, like Achilles heel or something like it's not, that. It's uh, not hubris. No, no, it's, it's, and I think it's something just as simple down or simply down of like her just desperate need to connect with others. Cause yeah. like I said, up at the top, it's like, even with the, you know, the tragedy of the loss of her mother, like it just seemed like she was a bit of a social outcast, a little bit of a misfit anyways, yeah. like wasn't quite accepted in the group and in like, love with really, the gay kid. <laughs> yeah um and I, I think it, it was just that like very and that's what makes it so tragic because it's not a bad thing in and of itself like the the need for community and connection with your peers uh but it's her undoing in the end yeah yeah certainly um another thing that occurred to me another um sort of motif in the movie or not quite well i guess it is part of a larger motif of course but it's uh she is obsessed with the memory of when she held hands with the boy that she loved mm, mm-hmm. with Danny. And it's just, and there's another, another, hands. You know, another hand intimate, you know, like that intimacy around hands, holding hands. 
Wow, it's really, really crack shot screen. Yeah, uh, this this concessions is probably going to be me conceding. I'm liking this movie the more we talk about it. Yeah, it's um, it's very, it's very rich. Um, okay, the other way that it's rich is just in the filmmaking. It's oh my god, is is wild stuff. Because that's what I was ultimately coming in. If I if you said like, oh, why? What did it fall short for you, Dan? Or why did I like it slightly less? Where it's like, oh, the filmmaking is absolutely impeccable. I think these guys are going to make probably one of the like, you know, one, two, three movies down the line. It's going to be one of the best horror movies we've ever seen because I yeah. just see the fucking firepower that they're working with. I just didn't see the theme or the thematic or the story elements quite there yet, but not even talking about it. Yeah, they're definitely there. So, uh, yeah, yeah let, let's just, uh, just geek out about the production well, here. Well, first of all, I'm not sure if they're going to keep making horror movies. They, um, they're, they're, they've been kind of clear in interviews that that's not necessarily their jam. Mm. Um, and and if you just kind of like background things, well, first of all, they're they're already in pre-production for their next movie, which is Street Fighter. Oh, awesome! Um, yeah, there's no one, there's there's no one better to make a Street Fighter movie because it has to be like silly, goofy, campy, sort of you know, 80s Miami connection-y, but it also has to just hit really hard, like, you mm -hmm. know, the actual visceral Gotta fighting, crunch. which they obviously excel at. Um, but they were, uh, and it hasn't been disclosed by them what movie it was, but they were, Warner Brothers offered them the directing chair in a, uh, for a DCEU movie that has come to pass that they, they said no to because Ooh. they wanted to make this movie instead. And actually, there's a there's a few things that like really make me admire these guys from just like a just like you know a, a, an artistic sense, like they're just their fortitude or um, whatever the opposite yeah, um, their integrity, whatever the opposite of selling out is, <laughs> is they were offered a certain budget right by the invest their investors when they decided to cast Sophie Wilde as Mia. They they did it they were allowed to do it but it meant that their budget would be about a million dollars lower than if they cast someone else i don't know if that means if they cast like a white person mm. or a more famous person or someone who isn't australian or or what have you but they they said that yeah we, like, when we cast mia they said we lost a million dollars of budget and they still they still did it because she is fucking amazing in this movie and she's definitely down the line she's a few performances away from delivering something really really good oh yeah yeah, yeah. um the other thing is they uh, uh one of the larger studios uh wanted to make this movie with them mm -hmm. um and it would have had a much larger budget much bigger um you know kind of uh distribution mechanism behind it but they wanted it to be american like they mm -hmm. wanted american accents set in america the Filippos said, you know, fuck you cunts. Like, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, kept it in their, their hometown of Adelaide, um, which is, you know, all of that stuff, like just the amount of integrity that these guys have, I think is also an indication of the, the YouTube background that DIY, I don't mm. actually need that level of like, you know, kind of financial backing to make something, you know, kick ass. Like that is definitely, uh, <laughs> pretty new advent yeah a breath that, of fresh air that's for sure that that certainly kind of stems from that diy-ness of youtube and them being youtubers so uh, just back to the but to the movie itself and some of the camera work in this is, is so good like 
again, this movie being so viscerally thrilling and so grotesque and it, it hits so hard and it, and it doesn't have anything to do with sudden jump scares. It's because just the way that they've blocked the movie and the way that the actors perform it and the way that the camera moves, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to say this movie even approaches the level of quality or, or subtlety or um, just kind of richness of this, but the way that the, the blocking and the, the way that the camera moves with the blocking um, in this movie, the level of care that was, that was actually given to it reminds me a lot of parasite. Oh um, yeah. No, I see like, what you're saying. Like it, it, you don't, you actually don't like, it, it's odd, but you don't see that a whole lot where it's like the, 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 the camera really captures the blocking in a way that feels like really, really intentional. Like when you're watching movies, it's usually like, you don't even kind of see it happening. Like obviously every, every director blocks their movies. Every cinematographer works with that director to really capture the blocking in a specific way. But it's kind of like a, one of the main events in this movie and, and, and parasite. And yeah. it, it's something that I actually hope is a, um, uh, something that happens more and more and more and more and becomes more of a and, trend because it reminds me of, uh, of, my theater background and that mm. sort of thing of being kind of f- more theatrical than cinematic, um, you know, the actual like care and attention. And that's the, interesting. The you go to the, the DIY aspect of it is like when you're working with, you know, when they're starting out in YouTube where you don't have a lot of tools past just technique to, to try to tell a story. Um, and what you're saying with uh, parasite, um, it kind of reminds me to, you know, something that parasite shares is it, it felt kind of Hitchcock at times too, with its blocking. Um, but I wonder if that's kind of where they got that, not Hitchcock or Bong Joon-ho per se, but like just the, you know, the sort of creativity and the sort of um, the resourcefulness that you have for storytelling when you have very few, like you don't have a lot of money to your name. It's just you and your friends in the backyard. So what do you got other than just like the basic techniques of filmmaking to just yeah. really tell what you're trying to say? just actually capturing the behavior and the movement in a compelling way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do They do a phenomenal job of that. Um, I want to talk about the performances, um, particularly Sophie Wilde as Mia and Joe Bird as Riley. Mm-hmm. They're the two actors that get to um, be possessed the most <laughs> in the movie. And these might be the greatest all-time possession performances like uh, there's a part that really sticks out in my mind uh, when it's not the first time she gets possessed. The first time Mia gets possessed, she does, she goes, she goes all out and um, uh, she's just absolutely terrifying the way that she moves and, and, you know, uses uh, kind of uses her body, uses her voice and everything. But the, the the shot that sticks out to me the most is during that kind of centerpiece montage where like everyone is taking turns. There's a part where she basically, like she gets, uh, possessed by like the spirit of like a French lady mm-hmm. and like her <laughs> yeah. entire, her entire body language just completely changes the way that her face rests just completely is completely different. And the like score, like the hip hop music that is uh, not diegetic. It's like it's score. It mm-hmm. starts to like layer with like her singing like a French song. Yeah. And it's so creepy and so fucking cool and so impressive for from like, you know, just her as a perform like a dynamic performer. It might be my favorite shot of the whole movie because it, it, I, I can see it so clearly 
like right now. Yeah, it's um, like the the height of this like carnivalesque evil that they're all participating in. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. That's it's like the climax of all of that. Uh, by the way, another just like kind of backstage trivia thing: they shot that montage uh, in half an hour. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, just by pure necessity, they had yeah. to. Um, so other than like just some like small like small establishing shots where uh, of the room where they were using like more. Um, uh, kind of intense equipment. Um, they they just like handheld shot that scene. Just boom, 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 boom. Everyone take turns. Um, pretty pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I really like them. But but man, Joe Bird as as Riley. Man, I just want to like protect him. Like what? <laughs> what a, a sweet good boy. kid. What a good kid. Like seeing him get that messed up really really is is terrible and man it's because that actor really commits to like all of the physicality of like the damage and you know he's just uh he's so like just believable as a sweet kid at the beginning that like seeing that progression i feel like is yeah i mean he's he's like the modern like linda blair and i'm about to say it's the same as the exorcist like the, the possession only hits if you see how pure and sweet and wonderful they are beforehand Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if they, um, I don't think this is like wrong to say, he kind of looks like a cute little kangaroo. (laughs) Like, and that feels intentional, like just with just considering like how much they kind of point at the the parallel between like the wounded kangaroo kangaroo and him. Mm -hmm. He kind of looks like a like a cute little Joey. (laughs) He really does. And his name is Joe. And I did wonder too with the, the you know the kangaroo. Oh, it's, I never caught that. Um, well, the actor's name is Joe. The oh, uh, Riley. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, the the kangaroo on the ground reminded me of Get Out and the deer. Um, and yeah. um, it also is doubly fitting because um, I, I spent some time out in Australia, and I you know when I fir- first was out there, like I thought kangaroos were like these beloved you know national symbols or something like that. Uh, to to people that lived out there, like they're seen as deer, like they're like pests yeah. that get they're in the pests. way in the road. Um, so I feel like in the same way that we would see the deer on the road is how they're seeing the kangaroo on the road. Yeah, yeah. And for a movie that actually doesn't really indulge in a lot of like iconic Australian things, like there's not a lot of Australian iconography in this movie. Like even though they really put their foot down and made an australian movie like it, it this could vary they could have they could have easily pivoted to set this movie anywhere yeah you give them um, all north american they, accents and i think this is yeah. any this is you know somewhere in california or something yeah you literally don't even have to call out where it's being where it's you know set but the kangaroo is definitely you know that iconic australian mm-hmm. thing that that is is in the movie and you know we don't need to dig too deep into like the parallels between riley and the kangaroo i mean it's that's so like straightforward that you know if you miss that maybe you need to watch the movie again. Um, but I do want to talk about the sound and I, I have a specific question for you about the sound design in this movie. The, it is like very, um, very prominent. The sound of that dying kangaroo, the sound of the knife going in at the beginning, uh, even like uh, there's a, there's a part where uh, Mia hits her friend with a pillow and it's just like, like kind of knocked me back in my chair. Um, when uh, when Mia gets possessed by that kind of big woman who drowned, mm. you hear you hear the water gurgling in her yep, throat. Yep, 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 yep. 
um, all of Riley's self harm of like hitting the hitting the furniture and everything, all of it, it's all huge. Mm-hmm. And my question for you is, did it take you out of the movie? Because for me, it's like really good sound design. Sometimes is like you're you're not conscious of it. But for me, I the whole time I kept going like, "Ooh, that sound effect was juicy. Oh, that was really loud. That was intense. Yeah. That really hit." And I'm wondering like what your experience with that specifically was. That's, see, that's interesting. And now, and I gotta compare it to their YouTube content too, because now it's making a little more sense after I watched a lot of it. Um, where for in the film, no, like I think it only enhanced it. Um, like I was aware of it, especially the water. I, for some reason, particularly that was like one that really uh, shot, or at least like kind of called attention to itself not in a way that pulled me out of the the uh the narrative but then when i was watching um their their youtube videos i kind of see where they're getting it from where they were using they use sign like or the the sound effects or like non-diegetic sound effects uh to uh for slapstick in youtube or on their youtube videos and you know um it's it's an old trope that like horror and comedy are kind of two sides of the same coin and there is there's a decent amount of comedy in this as well like they do slip in some pretty good jokes um and i think the same way that they use sound in the youtube videos to kind of heighten the comedy to me in kind of a chintzy way like they're using it in the same way here to heighten the the brutality or the horror of moments yeah, but answer my question. Like, did it? Did the? Did, were you fully conscious and aware of the sound to the point where it like was sort of distracting to you, or no, did it, um, did it just work? Other than the water, the water would be the only one that I'd say didn't one hundred percent work. The rest of them were, you know, hidden, uh, hidden at all cylinders. Yeah, but even yeah, the water I mean, still worked. It's just like I noticed it very uh, starkly. Yeah. Well, in any case, I, th- I think it's striking one way or another and uh, really impressive. But it was one of those things where it was like I w- it did take me a little out of the movie just because I was so admiring the craft of mm-hmm. the movie. Mm-hmm. Instead of like fully, you know, just giving myself over to the reality of it. I was like, "Ooh, that is that is great sound. And I think um, that might be what kept me from fully like loving it is almost it's kind of suffering from success where the craft is so bombastic and so like call so much attention to how incredible it is that yeah i kind of wasn't fully paying attention to the narrative or thematic elements because i'm just like oh fuck yeah that's good shit right there yeah 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 okay so um the last thing i really want to touch on and we, we did it a little bit already is the ending so like you've already called out that at the end mia dies she ends up on the other side of the hand as a spirit, maybe uh, as a, you know, as someone who's about to, you know, possess uh, some impressionable kids on the other side, yearning for connection. Um, And I I see like there's, there's sort of like an ebb and flow where we, we go through periods where most horror movies end very poorly for the protagonists. Um, And, you know, it's an, uh, an unhappy ending. I mean, we're kind of in that right now where it's, uh, it's not true of all the big horror movies, but many, many of them kind of end poorly for the main characters. There's there we've gone through periods where it's like we have the hero that triumphs against the slasher at the end, hmm. or the family you know escapes the possessed house or whatever it is. But right now it seems like we're firmly in the like the trend of unhappy endings. Hmm. But in horror movies, they feel good, like they feel satisfying. 
And I'm wondering why that is. Like, I've got like a few thoughts, but I'm wondering, Dan, like why, why do unhappy endings feel satisfying in a horror movie? Um, well, I think um, it's interesting that you say that, that like, um, you know, comparing the, the classic clashers where they have quote unquote happy endings uh, where the protagonist kind of succeeds, gets out. And now the, the endings to horror movies are starting to skew more towards you know, the characters are doomed. And I do wonder, at least this also fits as we're talking about, like, in this case, the unhappy ending is very fitting it, it, with the theme of connection, of uh, of this sort of social malaise and, and this, uh, this going to quick, easy fixes to try to feel something where um, it, it, it kind of indicates that it's like, this isn't this is a problem that doesn't seem to have a solution, or at least it doesn't have one that we can see right now, or there isn't uh, a, a foreseeable way out for these characters and in the worlds that they inhabit. So it would have felt very cheap for all of that thematic setup, for all of this rich, interesting discussion that's going on through the story to then kind of, uh, to kind of like save her or pull her out of it. Like, yeah, it, it would have felt like a cop out where this is much more in line with what the story was trying to do the entire time. So at least to take a very, very roundabout way to answer your question, I think in that sense, that's why an unhappy ending is satisfying in this case. I mean, it goes all the way back to, you know, uh, Plato and the poetics and, you know, catharsis and all that stuff. Catharsis doesn't necessarily have to be good. Um, yeah. So I think, I mean, long story short, I think it's unhappy ending because it had to be. Yeah. I like that. Um, cause, cause I, I often wonder about uh, particularly like horror movies that end with like a stinger or like a punchline that's almost a cliffhanger or like a setup. Mm. Like there's a lot of iconic horror endings where at the end it's like, Ooh, tune in next time. Like this, this movie you could easily interpret the ending as like, Oh, there's a whole new group of people that are now going to interact with the hand. Mm -hmm. It's a vicious cycle that could, you know, permeate through God knows how many sequels. <laughs> like it happens at the end of Halloween. Like Michael has disappeared um, it happens at the end of it follows like, Oh, like seems like they might still be, be being followed at the end there. Mm. And I'm wondering like, cause the cynic in me is like, okay, that's, that's commerce. Like they're literally just, um, you know, kind of creating some additional interest from a commercial perspective, but also there's a lot of artistry in that sort of stinger. And, and in this case, I think it skews heavily to uh to to artistry and mm -hmm. it's not like they were just preparing for a sequel but i could see like you know the cynical interpretation as well do you think there was in in this case there was any of kind of that commercial aspect to that decision in the storytelling um i think it certainly can be interpreted that way it also it's like it's possible to be both and um yeah. where i think this story that i mean like that's the proper ending to this story and it might set up some more. Now, I mean, I'd be interested to see if what they would do with this beyond uh, the first story. I mean, I'm sure someone with enough money who wants to make a profit could figure it out. Um, but yeah, this didn't feel like a cheap, like, oh, now it's time to set up the sequels and the, uh, you know, the talk to me cinematic universe or anything like that. <laughs> um Maybe like if we would have made a hundred million dollars, that would be a different answer to that question. Yeah. Um, where you know, this movie as a self-contained, tight, singular story completely works on its own, um, all the way up to the very last minute. So I see that there can be a cynical angle to it, but I think 
it was leading with artistic intent. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree there. I don't think there was ever any intention of this having a sequel. Although I have heard John Carpenter insist the same thing about how 1978 Halloween. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it made a couple hundred mil- million off of like a $1 million budget. So, you know, what are you going to do? No mm-hmm. choice at that point. They're going to make about um, 10 more. Yeah. Talk to me uh, did pretty well in its opening weekend. It, it had a wide release, but not a huge wide release because uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer are still <laughs> occupying all the screens in America. But talk to me was in like 2000 theaters. It made something like 10 or 11 million. Uh, its production budget was like 4 million. Um so uh, definitely successful, but successful in like independent horror movie. Terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, so I guess my question for you, since this is concessions and you you alluded to this already, I know I read like a little bit of your review. I think you gave us what three and a half stars on Letterboxd. Mm-hmm. Are you still sitting at three and a half stars or can, can we can we upgrade a little? Bit? No, I'll probably I'll probably sneak it up upon further reflection, because I think, as I had mentioned earlier, it's like my not my gripe, but the thing holding me back was um was that I got a little like the 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 production was almost so front and center and the technique was so front and center that I sort of uh, I felt like the story was in the backseat. It's also just kind of personal taste where it's like these are when it comes to horror films, these aren't the style of horror that gets me like it's usually that like really creeping dread like Skinnamarink uh, that just has that like really creeping dread that just kind of accumulates over time. There's not like one moment you can point to that really got you. But like when you're leaving the theater, you're like, oh, I feel gross. Uh, the uh, the Vivovich is other uh, great <laughs> example of that. Um, Cure, uh, Kurosawa's Cure is a great example of that too. Um, <laughs> oh, look, he's showing it on uh, Blu-ray that he might have shown me earlier today. That maybe is why I mentioned that as well. I, um, I'm holding up the Criterion Blu-ray of uh, Cure uh, by uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Yeah, not Akira. Abund- abundantly clear. Yeah. Um, uh, is so that one of your recommendations? No, interestingly, not. Um, if yeah, if we're gonna go right into recommendations, actually, I've got Let's two go into recommendations. I've got two interesting ones because I was thinking about it. It's like I don't, yeah, I don't know, like how to tie these together. So the first one, oh, just a general rule of thumb when I do recommendations, I try and do one movie that came out after I was born, and one movie that came out before I was born. So give you some contemporary, give you some classic stuff. Um, so the first one is another YouTube native director uh, executing a really fun fresh scary as shit horror movie can you guess it came out last year no why don't you that's barbarian oh yeah yeah the guy who made whitest kids you know (laughs) yeah out here doing uh horror where similar to talk to me where it's like a you know someone who cut their teeth on youtube uh he's definitely like a first generation youtuber uh but has some elements of comedy in there too but like just a kick-ass uh well-crafted scare the pants off you theater experience uh and so yeah barbarian like i think it's on hbo right now if you want to check it out uh great time Uh, i will say nothing more about it um the other one in the spirit of uh who i think these guys will be names that we're going to hear for a while so i was thinking like who's who's like a first film that i thought was really interesting that had things on its mind that uh, you'd later see them expand upon in really interesting ways. And it's this really odd-ass film I saw on Mubi not too long ago. And it's uh, David Cronenberg's very first film. And it's called, Mm. uh, bear with me here, this is the title, Stereo, open bracket, 
Title Three B of the CAEE, the Canadian Academy of Erotic Inquiries, Educational Mosaic, close, close bracket. Um, so that's the whole title of it. But yeah, it was um, it's Cronenberg's very first film. He's working on a tight budget uh, with not a lot of resources, still working in the horror sci-fi genre. And it's really fascinating to see what he does with his limited resources, with the same kind of themes on his mind that you see him expand upon in and still kind of talk about in films today. Like there's a lot of uh, crimes of the future that you see have their kind of nuggets in this very first film. Um, so those would be wow. my two recommendations would be Barbarian and Stereo Title 3B of CAE, Canadian Academy of Erotic Inquiries, Educational Mosaic. Right on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've literally never heard of that. And I've seen quite a bit of Cronenberg. But yeah, you know, oftentimes like some, like some like really prolific legendary directors if you go back far enough like you'll find out that they made a bunch of stuff before their like major motion picture debut and oftentimes like that'll get mischaracterized as their actual debut mm -hmm. film um and um yeah like i've never heard of that and uh i feel like um you know i've i've looked into cronenberg's history so that's that's great i want to it's check on that movie out. uh go check out movie and also movie if you want to check us out and sponsor us that'd be cool Oh yeah, yeah. I, I like Mubi a lot. <laughs> Is that enough to get sponsored? Um, <laughs> Mubi, I, it's uh, pretty cool. Yeah, um, you know, there's not like a, a huge um, amount of Australian horror that is sort of broken out into like a you know kind of global uh, eyes on it. But the, the but I do want to make sure that anyone who's listening to this who doesn't have a huge background uh, horror background uh, knows that there's you know there's been some like pretty recent classics in Australian horror. Uh, so the ones I want to point out are Lake Mungo. Hmm. Um, definitely uh, one of the best kind of mockumentary style um, kind of found footage type of movies. Um, and then Wolf Creek, uh, one of the best just like um, kind of serial killer type of thriller um, movie, just down and dirty, nothing, uh, nothing fancy about it. Just, um, just a real bad dude getting to work on some uh on some young people um <laughs> uh so yeah, just australian horror in general um there's like some keepers here and there the babadook is like probably the most mm. the most well-respected australian horror film of all time um i assume that anyone's like that's listening to a podcast about a horror movie is, is well aware of the babadook but if you haven't seen the babadook um one of the twins who directed this movie uh they worked on on the set of the babadook and apparently learned a lot about the craft um, because uh, their YouTube videos aren't a whole lot like this movie, but the Babadook kind of has, at least from like a filmmaking standpoint. Um, and then the other movie uh, that I want to point out is um, much more recent and shares some, shares some qualities in that uh, it's sort of a dark movie that is also kind of funny, but is very much about like Gen Z interacting with each other and like with technology and um this kind of uh you know question questions like the uh the the, the youth and their priorities is uh bodies 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 i was hoping you were gonna say that <laughs> yeah um i think that, i think that bodies 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 is sort of like this movie's goofy american cousin <laughs> in a way um but i thought i thought that movie was hilarious and dark and you know, pretty insightful 
and yeah, I think there's there's some some connective tissue there. And they they dunk on the the most important group of people that need to be put in their place, which is podcasters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very <laughs> true. All right, well, for concessions, I'm Jared, and I'm Dan, and we let you in.